Good morning. I've got uh, a bit of a cold up here, as you may be able to hear in my voice. Um, so I'll be uh, sniffling and coughing a little bit through this. But, you know, I can tell by, uh, by hearing some of the coughs and sniffles around that I'm not the only one. So we'll get through this uh, together. And, and thank God, by the way, that we are back at a place where I can be sniffling and coughing a little bit in public here and not have to feel like I have to now go home. So I'm very grateful for that, too. Um, but let's open this time up uh, in prayer. God, as we once again dig into your word, as we continue this journey through the book of Galatians, um, this look at what true freedom means, at what the gospel means, at what you've done for us, and how it changes our perspective on the things around us, on ourselves, on our church community. Uh, God, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to what it is that you have to say to us. Help these things um, to begin to change and shape who we are as we look at your word, your God-breathed word. Um, breathe into us through this. In your name, God. Amen. So we are uh, continuing through the book of Galatians. Today we're taking a look at chapter 4. Uh, this is the fourth part of the series. You may have noticed by now that we're sort of going chapter by chapter through uh, this thing. And we're not covering full chapters, but we're sort of taking a chunk of Scripture from within each chapter um, that sort of speaks to some of the themes that are running through the book. And what that means is that actually we're not covering most of Galatians. We're, we're going through it, but we're skipping over large sections of the book to sort of focus in on the piece of Scripture that we're looking at each week. And so one of the things that I want to encourage you on uh, is to maybe take some time to read through the entire book uh, just to get a sense of how these pieces that we're covering fit in uh, to the larger picture in Galatians. It's not a huge book. It's six chapters. It should take you maybe 15, 20 minutes to read through. It would be a good exercise to kind of see how these places where we've landed fit into the larger story that Paul is telling. Uh, and today we're going to be focused in on chapter 4, uh, chapter 4 verses 1 to 11, but it's worth noting that this comes kind of in the middle of a larger argument or a larger statement that Paul is making that starts back in chapter 3. He kind of launches into uh, an extended sort of discussion or metaphor on Abraham. He's talking about Abraham uh, and, and the covenant that God made to Abraham and how it relates to the Galatians. And that will have been a hugely important topic of conversation uh, because that's really the root in many ways of all of the division, of the issue that is coming up here. Are the Galatians really a part of, of the covenant that Abraham was given, of the promise that Abraham was given, of the family of God, under Abraham, do they truly fall into the category of God's people, or do they have to start to do things or change things or add things to their salvation in order to fit in with this new family that they're entering into? And that's a question for us too, as, as Gentile believers here in this room, do we truly and completely fit in to the family of God, or is there somehow some separation uh, between God's family and us. So Paul is wrestling through this question of the covenant that God made uh, and, and what authority that Jesus Christ has to expand that covenant 
to include the Gentiles, and all these things, and how the law fits into this, and how the faith and law are connected. These are these themes that have been coming up through the book. Uh, And Paul sums this up beautifully at the end of chapter 3. He says, the law has a purpose. It had a purpose. It was significant to our forefathers, uh, to the Jewish forefathers, but it also, uh, in a way, holds us captive. He says this in verse 14. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. The law was a tool that leads us to Jesus, and we are justified through Jesus. Maybe a way of thinking about this uh, is that maybe people thought of the law as a ladder. There's danger in thinking of the law as a ladder that you can climb in order to get closer to God or to be with God. But Paul says the law was never a ladder. The law was a thermometer. It was something that told us how sick we are with sin and how in need of a Savior we were. And as he's building through this argument, he arrives at this incredible passage that we're diving into today. Chapter 1 talked about how the Galatians should be cursed for the ways in which they've gotten the gospel wrong, the danger in distorting the message of salvation. Chapter 2 was about highlighting the division between Paul and Peter over this issue, wrestling with the fact that they didn't agree and Paul trying to clarify why this is so important. Chapter 3, which Pastor Dion covered last week, focused on the freedom that we receive, not because of our works or what we do, but through faith. And then he launches into chapter 4, Paul does, continuing to kind of build on that argument, this idea of the freedom we have through faith. Before we get into the scripture, I want to read you a different letter, not a letter to the Galatians, but a letter written about 150 years ago uh, that was somewhat recently found. It's not preserved in a museum in the States. It's written by a former slave uh, to their master. So emancipation has happened here. This slave has been released. Uh, Slavery is no longer legal at this point in the States. He's been released Uh, from his master, uh, and obviously his master has gotten in touch and now he's responding. Uh, The old master is contacting old slaves apparently and asking them, come back now and work for me. Work for me for wages on my plantation. I can give you you back your old position and I'll pay you, it'll all be good. And this is what uh, the, the former slave says. Dayton, Ohio, August 7th, 1865, to my old master, Colonel P.H. Anderson, Big Spring, Tennessee. Sir, I got your letter and was glad to find that you had not forgotten Jordan and that you wanted me to come back and live with you again, promising to do better for me than anybody else can. Although you did shoot at me twice before I left you, I did not want to hear of your being hurt and I'm glad you are still living. I want to know particularly what the good chance is you propose to give me. Mandy, his wife, uh, says she would be afraid to go back without some proof that you were disposed to treat us justly and kindly. And we have concluded to test your sincerity by asking you to send us our wages for the time we served you. This will make us forget and forgive old scores and rely on your justice and friendship in the future. I served you faithfully for 32 years and Mandy 20 years. At $25 a month for me and $2 a week for Mandy, our earnings would amount to $11,680. 
Add to this the interest for the time our wages have been kept back, and deduct what you have paid for our clothing and three doctor's visits to me and pulling a tooth for Mandy, and the balance will show you what we are in justice entitled to. If you fail to pay us for our faithful labors in the past, we can have little faith in your promises in the future. We trust the good maker has opened your eyes to the wrongs which you and your fathers have done to me and my fathers in making us toil for you for generations without recompense. He concludes by adding, Say howdy to George Carter and thank him for taking the pistol from you while you were shooting at me. <laughs> from your old servant, Jordan Anderson. That, friends, is what we should expect a former slave to say when given the chance to go back to his old master. Being rescued from bondage, from slavery, from captivity, that is what should be the response. Thank you, but no thank you. And perhaps it helps us understand why Paul was so taken aback at what he saw as the Galatian church drifting back into slavery when they've been offered freedom. I want to read the passage we're getting into today, and you'll hear his heart for the Galatians on this, I think, starting in chapter 4, verse 1. What I am saying, Paul says, is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, he's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But the time had fully come, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. So out of this passage, there are three encouragements now, Paul's encouragements don't always feel that encouraging. He can be a pretty blunt guy. But I think there are three genuine encouragements that Paul is making to the Galatians that I want to focus on uh, for the rest of our time here. And I want you to notice I did a very pastoral thing, and I made all of my points start with the same letter. So, the first one is this. Recognize the shackles of human effort. Recognize the shackles of human effort. There's something pretty shocking that happens here in this little section that only gets uncovered when you start to dig in uh, to the original Greek. There is a word that shows up in verse 3 and then again in verse 9. Uh, and in the NIV, in most of your Bibles, it'll, it'll say basic principles or some translations say elementary principles. Some translations just say principles. But the Greek word there is stoicheion, is the name of that word. That's, that's what it, uh, the original Greek is. And that word is used uh, to speak to sort of the most foundational 
or basic things. Uh, in Hebrews, the author uses this word, and he's talking about sort of the milk that baby Christians drink as they're growing in their faith before they move on to solid food. So it's not surprising necessarily that Paul would use this word. He uses it other places, and other New Testament writers use it through Scripture, but it's surprising how he uses it. You'll have to do your best to kind of get yourself into the mindset of a first century new Christian wrestling with this kind of new form of Judaism that's coming, this new religion being born out of uh, Jewish history. So in verse 3, he's talking about the basic principles that we were subject to under the law of Moses. Uh, that by being under the law, we had these first principles. We, the Jews, Paul says, we were enslaved to these elementary principles of this world. Fair enough, to the law. But then down in verse 8 and 9, he switches to you. He says, so we were enslaved to the stoicheon, to the, the, uh, the elementary principles of the world. But Paul says, you, the Galatians, well, you didn't have the law of Moses. Before you heard about Jesus, you were worshiping other gods, gods like Zeus or Apollo or Aphrodite. And Paul says, how can you turn back to those weak and miserable principles, the stoicheon? It's that same word. So here's the shocking part. How, how can Paul use the same word to refer to the law of Moses, which is given by God, from Mount Sinai, written on tablets, how can he refer to that word, or that principle, that law, with the same word that he is talking about pagan religion, following Zeus or Aphrodite? This would have been a shocking thing to hear. Is he actually trying to put those two things in the same category? I think Paul's being a little bit dramatic, as he does sometimes, uh, to make a point uh, the thing that connects those two, I think, is human effort. Whether we are trying to follow the commands of the true God, or we are performing rituals to some false God, the issue Paul is highlighting is that we are making it about ourselves. Our religious practices, our good works, our holiness, our performance. What the Jewish and the Gentile worshippers had in common is the fact is that both of these things are focused on human effort. Paul is saying that knowing about the true God and his commands isn't enough when it comes to human effort. The end result is no different than following a false God. All human effort leads to the same conclusion. He wants to see clearly, he wants the Galatians to see clearly here that depending on human effort, wherever that effort is directed, is a return to shackles. It's a return to change. It's abandoning our freedom for slavery. And that brings us to our second point, where Paul wants us to resist the temptation to go back to slavery. So there's two sections that highlight this. The beginning and the end kind of focus on this. Uh, he kind of bookends the passage with it, first in verse 1 to 3, and then in verse 9 to 11. Paul has been talking about these elementary principles of the world. Both Jews and Gentiles enslaved by the shackles of depending on human effort. Uh, but look at what Paul emphasizes in verse 1 to 3 here. Even though the Jews were God's covenant people, even though they were in line to inherit God's promise to Abraham, they were still just like children of the landover, they, landowner. They had no true right yet to those promises. They were subject to guardians and trustees. 
In chapter 3 leading up to this, Paul says they're captive under the law. They're imprisoned until faith was going to be revealed. In fact, Paul says that when the heir is a child with no rights of their own, they're really no different than a slave because they lack true freedom. And so this is the warning that Paul is bringing to the Galatians for them to turn to the law of Moses in order to be right with God is just like going back to the very slavery they knew when they were worshiping false idols. They just, the Galatians, as Gentiles, they'll be jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire. They're just exchanging one kind of slavery for another. This is human nature, and it shows up in all sorts of ways. I remember just the small things. I remember when we had uh, cell phone contracts under MTS. We were under MTS uh, for a long time. We were constantly frustrated by the service and the prices and the options, and eventually, oh, eventually we finally made the switch to Rogers. And we felt like we had escaped the horrors of MTS. And we found out it's all the same problems, just in a different place with different names. And now I look at Fido plans or public mobile or other places and go, maybe that's going to solve my problem. If I can hop over to some other cell phone provider, maybe if I just moved over there, things would get better. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. But then we get over there, and it's just another lawn we have to take care of. This is how life works. You get annoyed with an iPhone, and you switch to Android. You're just trading one set of problems for another. You're Originally here, I had a set of comments about different tractor makes. <laughs> but I realized that was probably treading on pretty thin ice for some of you. So I'm going to go to something less controversial. Um, politics. You're, <laughs> you're tired of one political party? See, I'm done with them. I'm finished. All these problems, there's deception and lies and double-crossing and manipulation. And you switch over, you go, I'm going to be with these guys. Same set of problems, different color, same set of problems. This is how life goes. We constantly are flipping from one thing to the next, thinking that maybe it'll be better, that it'll save us, but it turns out we're just jumping over to another set of problems. We switch from one solution to another, but they're all leading, like this comic here. I'm not sure how well you can see it, but there's this cow that's got the option between left and right. It's all going to the slaughterhouse. It doesn't matter. They don't actually have choice. It's just the illusion of choice. But I can't help but see uh, that this cow does actually have a choice here. We get so caught up in the options that the world presents us that we forget that God has made another way. I think there's another slide here. He doesn't have to go. He doesn't have to go left or right. There's another option for him. And for the Galatians, uh, the very freedom that they were first drawn to when Paul presented the gospel, the freedom that they found in Jesus, that was the freedom that they were giving up by just swinging over to another version of religion. They were abandoning the way out that God had given them and saying, nope, I like this choice better. Paul says in verse 9, now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved to them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. So how do we escape this cycle? 
If we're constantly switching from one version of religion to another, from one cell phone plan to another, trading in one form of slavery to another, how can we break free of this trap? Well, here's my fourth, my third R point. Rejoice in our position as the sons and the daughters of God. The Galatians desperately needed to recognize the shackles of human effort and to resist the temptation, the universal human temptation that we have to slip back into slavery, to one thing or another. Paul's solution to this, the anchor that he calls us to hold to, is to recognize and rejoice in our position as the sons and daughters of God. Here's the incredible truth of the matter. The Galatians didn't need to keep the law in order to go from outside to inside with God. They didn't need to follow the rules to do the right things or worship the right holidays or adhere to the right Jewish customs. They're already there. They're inside. They're already family. They're already God's own children. So how is this possible? Paul goes back to that gospel message that he's been leaning on through this book and through his ministry. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. Jesus was made to be like us so that he could stand with us and for us. Born under law, right? Jesus was born under law in order to accomplish what only he could do, what we could never do. He was born under law in order to keep the law perfectly. And he did that in order to redeem those under the law. Because he was perfect. He wasn't imprisoned by the law. He wasn't a slave because of sin. And he was able to buy us out of slavery through the payment of his death that we might receive the full rights of sons. That redemption wasn't some transition from one form of slavery to another. That redemption was adoption. Through the cross of Jesus, the slave becomes a son or a daughter. And the proof is the Holy Spirit. Paul kind of goes back to this throughout the book, especially in chapter 3 that Dion covers last week. He talks about these things. The Spirit is the thing that confirms our adoption as sons and daughters of God. And the result isn't just news that we've been freed from our sin, that we've been, been seen to be uh, not guilty by some cosmic judge, right? Jesus lived the perfect life and he overcame the law and he died in our place so that we would be justified, that we would be made righteous. And that's amazing, but there's more to it than just justification. Because we are children of God, Paul says, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who cries out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a child. Since you are a child, God has also made you an heir. To see God as the judge who has pardoned us, that's correct, it's true, but it is not the full picture. It doesn't capture the full significance of what's happening here. Because if I was pardoned by a judge, I would be forever grateful to that judge, but I'm not sure that I would be in relationship with that judge. If I was on a life or death trial and the judge told me not guilty, I would be thankful. I would be grateful. I would be overwhelmed. And I would also probably be very happy to get out of that courtroom and not see that judge again. I wouldn't want to hang out with the judge. I wouldn't want to have dinner with the judge. I wouldn't want to go see the Mario movie with the judge. I appreciate the verdict, but I don't think we're ever going to be buddies 
I feel like if I went to a Mario movie, he'd be sitting there going, mushrooms can't talk. Those two Italian guys should not have plumbing licenses. That angry turtle needs to be litigated for street repair. He's, he seems like a grumpy guy. But my dad? I want to sit down with my dad. I want to have a conversation from, with him. I want to learn from him. I want to spend time with him to hear that he's proud of me. I want that. And so this verse changes everything for us. It's not just that we've been justified or made righteous. It's that we've been brought into relationship. Paul uses this word, Abba. That word's an Aramaic word. Paul's talking Greek here to Greek speakers. Uh, but, I mean, if I had a dime for every time around the coffee table at the Heritage with our seniors, that, well, that joke would have been way funnier in Low German. Or that word would have made way more sense in Plautich. That's, that's how Paul is feeling here. There's no word in Greek for this. Like, I, I don't even have a word for you in your own language, and so I'm switching over to this Aramaic word. It's the word that Jesus himself used for his father in Mark. It's a title of intimacy that you'd only ever use with your own dad. As we close here, Paul is trying desperately to make it clear. We are either slaves to something, the law or religion or the world. Paul seems to say it doesn't matter so much what you're slaves to. The fact is you are slaves. You are either slaves to something or we are children of God. Those are the options. Everyone is in one of those two categories. The door has been opened for you. The way has been made. And as you walk on your journey with Christ, God is speaking to all of us, I think, through the words of Paul and asking us, pleading with us, if you have been adopted into God's family, why would you ever take on the position of a slave again? How could you do that? The slave at the beginning there, the one who wrote that letter, he understood the reality of his bondage. And his letter reflected that understanding. But like that former slave, you and I receive invitations daily to return to our former master, to slip in to sin, to put on the shackles of human effort. Can you imagine how ridiculous, how unbelievable it would be to see a former slave walk back to his old master, pick up the chain, snap him back on. What freed slave, Paul says, would ever do such a thing? I was at a fundraising gala for the Long Bull Lake Bible Camp yesterday. That's the camp uh, that Living Fountain went to um, this last summer. And, I, and it's also the camp that I grew up going to as a kid and, uh, and served at as a, as a young adult. They raised uh, $900,000 yesterday, by the way, to fund a bunch of new projects there, including expanding the beach and replacing doors and windows and making a big chapel expansion. It's exciting stuff. But uh, Phil Calloway was there. Uh, some of you might know him. Uh, he was there as kind of the keynote speaker, and, and he told a story towards the end of his time, and I thought it fit in beautifully here. He talked about a man who had been on a plane ride with horrible turbulence, people, adults, screaming in their seats, people freaking out, terrified. And yet next to this man was a little girl couldn't have been more than 10, sitting there, reading her book, calm as could be. And eventually this plane sort of rattles its way down onto the runway, and it taxis its way into the gate, and they're sitting there, and the man looks at this girl and says, that was some plane ride, huh? And the girl says, yeah. Lots of turbulence, he says. Girl says, yeah. People around here were losing their minds. They were terrified. Girl says, yeah. But you were calm. And the girl nods. How is it that you stayed calm through all of this? 
Well, she says, it's simple. My dad's the pilot. My dad's the pilot. And I knew. I knew he'd get us home safe. That's the sort of life that we're invited into. Our dad, our Abba, has taken us into his family. We're no longer slaves to fear. We're children of God. We don't have to do it. He's got it under control. He's piloting the plane. We are simply called to have faith. How could we ever think that going back to the life of a slave is where we belong? And so brothers and sisters in Christ, that's not an empty phrase. That's not just sort of a hollow statement. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are in God's family. We have been brought to the table. You who have been adopted into the family of God, who have the privilege and the right to call God Father through the sacrifice of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit within you, we're not what we have done or have not done. We are unconditionally loved as sons and daughters of Christ, a part of his family, already at the table. Thanks be to Jesus. Amen? Amen.